The Human Torch was denied a bank loan. I've started. Um, so our new Apple TV uh-huh. has um, has a like a microphone in uh-huh. it, and you can just like yeah. speak your search into yeah. it. And so we're watching The Wire right now. Right. And every time I go search for The Wire, I go The Wire, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Nick's like started to do it a little yeah. bit. That would be the wire. That's something I want built in. Like I want Alexa in the Kindle. Now mm. I want to be able to like shout into the book. Where is the plot? <laughs> and have it like skip ahead like a hundred pages in. The... Show me the sex scenes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like I should be able to verbally shout at my books now. Mm. That would make editing much better. Yeah. Like. Um. No, I don't know. I think that we are at the point now where we're going to have to start talking to all of our devices. Um, you're going to see people shouting at things on well, you've trains. Been, you've been hearing that like Alexa or whatever is just like screaming at uh-huh. people yeah, now. It's, and it's laughing. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's reading the books when we're not there. It probably is. Probably. Alexa's much more literate than I am at this point. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, of course, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Um, today is March 20th. 20th. March 20th. Um, we've got a pretty fun show for you today. Thankfully, we've been a little serious lately, but we're going to be fun today. Um, but before we get into all of that great stuff, how about the basic rundown? Yes. So um, time for our normal weekly update for our Patreon subscribers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Query show's already out. First Pages is coming to you uh, this week. Next week will be Writing by Reading. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited. We're going to be doing Jennifer Egan's Manhattan Beach. Mm-hmm. And we're we're going to be yell talking. about that. That's yep. going to be good. Yes. Folks. Laura's been disrespecting it. I have been disrespecting she has the book. Been, and obviously, I'm here to protect Jennifer Egan at all costs. <laughs> protect mother. But I think I think it's caused my disrespect has been causing some some really good conversations. So we want to touch on that. And yeah. I also want to do talk a little bit about technical writing. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, so we'll be doing that. So if you're an eight dollar or more a month Patreon subscriber, you will have access to that next week as well. Also, we um, have just finished up our um, poll on Twitter for our special 100 patrons episode. Yeah, so we, um, like we promised, when we got to 100 patrons, and we did, and we are incredibly thankful for that, um, we were going to do something fun, right? We were going to do one extra special episode, and we did kind of a poll on... Whatever you wanted. Yeah, like what what kind of episode do you guys want to see? And the vote was pretty split. And it was kind of a tie between something fun and something craft related. And so I guess what we're going to try to do is come up with something that combines those two things. Yeah. So look for that in coming weeks. We'll get that done. If and you have suggestions about what that would look like, yeah. um, let us know. Otherwise, we might just do like a, you know, drunk reading of a bad book and turn it into a writing by reading or something. We'll I don't know. Do we'll something. figure it out. It'll be great. The content will never stop. <laughs> it will always be good. Um Speaking yeah. of content, mm-hmm. um, I I experienced a very 
strange and exciting moment this week that related to publishing that I need to talk to you about. Uh Um, So normally we record the show on Mondays Mm -hmm. and um, after we record the show, I go down into the basement uh, with with my fiance and we watch uh, Last Week Tonight, which is on HBO demand, like on demand or whatever, because we don't have the actual channels because we're millennials. Um, And so we watch it on Monday nights. Mm -hmm. Right. And so last night we did not record, but I did come home and we did indeed still watch Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Um, And watching this show, I experienced something very rare Uh it was like i was david attenborough like finding (laughs) like the last white rhinoceros in the savannah um my beautiful fiance bought a book in the first like the for the first time (laughs) in our entire four and a half year relationship yeah so near as i can tell what seems to have happened here is um I guess Mike Pence's daughter and his wife, um, colloquially known as Mother, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> um, they like wrote a children's book about a rabbit that like watches the vice president or something. Like we've got a they have a they have a pet. It's rabbit, like a children. Yeah. It's like a children's book illustrated. They put it out fine. Um, and I guess to own him, um, the John Oliver last week tonight staff like wrote a separate children's book about like the rabbit being gay. Yep. Um, and like the idea here, you know, is like kind of. Um, you know, lampooning and playing with um, Mike Pence's kind of out and out homophobia um, and his fairly toxic policies toward the LGBTQ community, all that kind of stuff. Um, but they, basically the idea was that they were going to put out this sort of parallel book that parodied the first one while also. But then but then something funny happened, which is that everyone bought this other picture book. Yeah. Right. And now it's it's like, what is it? Number one right now. Did everyone number buy one the on other Amazon. rabbit book? Yeah, whereas the whereas the uh, the homophobic rabbit book yeah. is at like spot number five or something. Well, so I don't know now to defend the Pences, as you won't hear me do uh, very much. Um, is the rabbit book homophobic, or is the rabbit book just a book about rabbits? Because I think it's just kind of this. Well, it is little, just about well, right, rabbits. But it, I mean, but I feel like if they named their family rabbit Marlon Bundo <laughs> after an actual bisexual yeah, yeah, yeah. person, yeah. and then basically like are going and like doing book events about Marlon Bundo at Focus on the Family. Oh, there's no. Question. I feel like that's no, yeah, a little bit yeah, homophobic. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, no question. But um, I guess this has gotten everybody up in a tizzy. And so now we've got sort of a competing Amazon war. Yeah. Where like. And now I have a Marlon Bundo parody book coming <laughs> is to it my coming? home. When does it arrive? We should I don't do know. It. <laughs> it was like backordered. It was like this can arrive in like two weeks or something like that. So I don't know. I'm going to get it. But it was honestly, you know, Nick, Nick reads like he does. He has like Audible and stuff. But like this is honest. But he doesn't read like print books. Yeah. And this is honest to God, the first book I've ever seen him purchase. And it was very strange. Well, it obviously, I mean, the book got everybody, you know, mad or fired up in all the ways you would expect. You had the, obviously, everyone racing to buy the book so that it could beat it on the list, beat the other one on the list. It also, and it did. yeah, it also, all the profits go to the Trevor Project. Yeah. So that's also another reason people and were rushing. And then it made, um, obviously, it made all the conservative people mad. So they have to go and... 
um, you know, buy the first rabbit book. So we're doing the same thing we do with all of our politics now because none of us have any idea how to like organize or be active in any real way. We just like buy books at each other, <laughs> you know, like the way, like basically the yep. way we've all decided to like fight our it's political capitalism. fights is just by like buying things on Amazon. Yep. Um, which is really good. But the other way we do it is by writing really um, slipshot articles in whatever, you know, blog you write for, which is where um, my hero and yours, Ben Shapiro, comes in. Uh, <laughs> um, Explain to the he, people who Ben yeah, well, Shapiro he's just, is. He's just this little. He's just this little gremlin that pipes in every time anything like culture warry happens. Yep. And he just kind of gets mad and says things like, um, you know, facts don't care about your feelings, even as he's just like having an aneurysm online about whatever new thing someone has like made him say or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so he had kind of a funny line here as he was like raging against, you know, the left wing psychos who decided to go like buy this book um, written by the John Oliver staff. And here he says, this is the nature of the hard left. They hate conservatives so much that they're willing to smear completely apolitical children's literature in order to target those conservatives. Charlotte is a delightful young woman with no discernible political background other than her association with her dad. The book is utterly apolitical, so naturally it must be made a target of the LGBT mockery, you know, to save the country from Trump. Like, it's just like this constant kind of screed. I'm going to keep working on my Ben Shapiro voice as it's we go. It's coming along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, but Much better than last time and, I like, heard he's it. And like, he's really mad because like everyone went in and gave it one star. Like the... <laughs> Because again, this is how we this is how we fight uh, our political fights. Now we do it through consumer reviews and by purchasing things. on Amazon.com. Um, we're just constantly, and then we write blog posts about those consumer reviews. And pretty soon, there's going to be a post that responds to uh, this Shapiro article. And what's really going to happen is both books lend up as one and two for a while because, again, like buying the book now becomes a political imperative. And I don't know. It feels like we're all kind of. Losing our brains I a hope little the bit. Book is oh, good. I, I'm sure the book is fine. I can't wait to read it. I'm going to read it know. here. I'm, we're going to do a live dramatic reading. Maybe right that here. should uh, be our 100. <laughs> it's just me, just hammered reading this like children's book. This parody rabbit book. Why aren't there too many words on the pages? Yeah, Why do I have to keep turning the pages? It, anyway, it's going to be really good. But so that's I'm, my personal update. Yeah. Um. How? What's? How have you been doing? What's been going on with you? Whew, man. Um, other than, you know, leaving, you know, using my 20 alt accounts on Amazon to leave one star and five star reviews on every book that I like or dislike. Yep. Um, I have been at a lot of readings lately. It's, you know, it's that time of it's year time in of Minnesota year, because all of a sudden the snow is melting and then people are re- realizing that like outdoor exists and that other people do too. In edits, you can add in the fact that it is literally snowing right now as we speak, as it you is, say that. It is uh, currently not snowing. It was snowing all day ends, long. Because winter never ends and summer will never sticking. get here. Um, but yeah, no, I've been on a lot of readings lately and it got me kind of thinking. Um, it was for um, some agency authors. One of them was with one of my particular authors. Um, a few different little things like that. And it's sort of just the sheer rush of them, how many there have been. Um, it got me thinking about... Like, what is a good, like, what makes for a good book event and what makes for, oh, let's hear it, please. It has cake. Should we, oh, I thought you said take. No. I thought you were about to, like, give me, like, some advice Well, I mean, yes, my my take take. on book events is that it has sweets. (laughs) Okay. Um, That's actually, no, that's, this is the thing with that, though, is usually these are, like, alcohol events. Right. Also booze. But it doesn't, but it's on, like, a. and booze, don't you get, like, kind of a stomach ache from that? Like, I feel like I need. I don't know. So anyway, the point is, 
I don't know about the cake. We're going to have to fight about the cake later. But Maybe I was a cookie. mostly thinking about how mostly I've been to really bad book readings like in my life. These ones, to be clear, were good. They were fine. They were like, I think the best thing you can say about a book reading is that it was like engaging while you were there. You had a good time. And then you walked away feeling like it was kind of a good conversation, left you thinking about some things. And then it sort of just fades, you know, like nothing provocative happened, nothing you know, no one did anything totally off the wall. Like it was, especially when it's one of your authors, right? You just kind of want yeah. it to happen. Like people, like, like the best people things, showed up, you people know, like, show up, <laughs> uh, nobody gets arrested. I've been to a lot of them where people don't show up. Yeah. That's the worst. Yeah. Because then you're like sitting there like a, like a soccer mom on the side of the, sh- of the field. And you're just like desperately hoping that your, your little beautiful child like does well, even as it's like crumbling it's like a being at a piano recital you know you just like want it to go well i've been to an event where i it's me and like (laughs) one person or you're the who's like going for a school assignment or something you're just like praying 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 that people buy books and want to get them signed and like have a little conversation you know all the things that make it fun not only for people in the room and maybe the bookstore but also like for the author like it's weird because you go and what you want to happen is for the author to have a good time. Yeah. Like it's kind of strange. Like you don't you aren't you don't go in thinking, man, it would be really great if everyone in this audience had a really fun time. Like what you're thinking when you come as a professional, you're thinking, man, I just hope that the person at the front of the stage comes away feeling like this was productive and engaging and useful. Um So what's the worst book event that you've ever <laughs> been to? I'm oh so in cuz you go to um, more than I do. Yeah, no, I went to one this was um, this was back in New York. It was at um, I actually don't remember what one of some smaller bookstore, um, but it was two poets. Oh, that's so all that's, you need to say. So like it was a first, poetry reading. So that's the first thing, because poetry readings some are really great, and some are not really great. And the problem with either is that typically you're not going to get a huge turnout for poets because people don't necessarily know. Like it's not going to generate the sort of off the street enthusiasm at like a, a book that maybe is a little bit more commercially out there and yeah. ads and stuff might. Um, but so I went to this one because I had a professor who like knew the writers and she was like, oh, you simply must go see these two poets. They're so good and report back to me all this stuff. And so I went. Was she giving extra credit? Oh, I was out of school at the time. It was like an ex-professor. Oh, OK. Um, but I went and it was me, the two poets, and then like seven maybe other people in the audience that's good mm, like eight it? people was is pretty it? well i mean um, i we were better all like, than none we were like all there was like eight across you know we were all there and like definitely five of the others were like personal friends of the office <laughs> so it felt like i was sitting in like their living room mm. if that makes sense because they all knew each other and then what ended up happening is that the poems both sets were just incredibly incredibly graphically sexual and so i'm sitting i'm sitting there i'm sitting there <laughs> how in this old bookstore. were you at this point i was like 22 or something you know, so you were like real blonde and, blushing real hard yeah yeah so and i'm in like my reading clothes right so i, I, I <laughs> i've got like my little outfit on you know? okay okay little, time out um, talk to me about yeah, this yeah, okay, reading so outfit this is the first thing that you have to have with with readings you've got to have a good pair of chinos <laughs> Especially if you're going to a poetry, you can't go what to a color? poetry because you can't chinos? go. In, you can't go in slacks or khakis or something right. dumb like that, right? What you, color chinos? Because the key, first of all, the key to the poetry reading is not looking like you have a job. 
Like you have to look like you <laughs> you're wearing something. Like if it looks like you wore that to your job, then you, you know, you're not one of the poets. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have to, so you have to wear a pair of pants that you would like never wear to a professional setting. You need to be like uh, artfully put together, yeah, yeah, yeah. but so also I had on this like casual. pair of. Yeah, I've got this pair of like bright red, fairly tight chinos. You they know, are. That, that they're kind of the statement pants, um, <laughs> and I've like heard that they don't look nearly as good as I think they do, and it was very devastating I to like learn you that in the statement from... pants. I haven't seen you in the statement pants in quite a while. I know. I've been, I've been mourning. No, um, it's but. So I'm in there and I'm like sitting there and just like watching these two middle-aged people read basically their sex diaries in poem form to like Excellent. their to their closest friends. I think one of them was an agent, one of them was maybe an editor at the publishing house that they worked at. You know, it was very small and I'm just kind of I think I was the only person off the street there and it was just they kept like looking up and making eye contact, and the thing is, just there, with is, you. There, is there were two of them, right? And so like one of them would finish <laughs> the poem, and the other one would go like, mm, "Yeah, yes, no reprieve," like, and then they just rip- and then they would just pick it up, and it was just awful. And I remember leaving, like, and you know, it was like expected that I like I was clearly the only one who didn't already have the book, you know, and I like had to. <laughs> I think I. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I bought the book, but buying the book simply to avoid the awkwardness of walking out of there without the book would be the sort of thing that happens at a reading a lot. And I have yeah. done that before where you just buy the book because the room, you just feel like the room needs a victory. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I've been to – I mean, you know, there's a lot of other good ways to have events too. I mean, you can have, um, you know, people – like I think the conversational format is usually the best. Like you get someone up there as sort of an interlocutor, you know, and they have the, you have the person reading, and then you have them chat, you take some questions, boom, you're done. That, that like, can go poorly, though. You can. Yeah. Uh, I have an example of when yeah. it goes poorly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I am and have always been a, I guess you could say, precocious person. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was young, I don't know, I was probably like 12 or something, the the first Aragon book, the Christopher Paolini book, you know, the the one that he wrote when he was like 15 and he like (laughs) did the whole cover and his parents self-published it. But then, um, so that real, yeah, real quick, that detail. Yes. The part about his, like, well, his parents owned a self-publishing company. So like I grew up, I swear to God, as a teenager, yeah, I spent my entire youth feeling incredibly bad about myself because of Christopher Paolini. Like, and I was one of those things was like, well, why haven't you written a book and published it to millions of adoring fans yet? Yep. And now, like, I and later in my life, I learned that there was, like, kind of this inside track for the book. Yeah. And if I had only known that growing up, I would have been a very different little boy. Do you want, <laughs> do you want to hear the whole the yeah. whole saga yeah. of Christopher yeah. Paolini yeah. being published before I get to my story? Okay. Yeah. We're, like, doing the 1001 Nights in here. Okay. Yeah. No, it's so, very... It's very mysterious. He writes this dragon book. Uh-huh. His parents, who own a self-publishing company, publish it. And then Christopher Paolini, like the weird Dungeons and Dragon playing, and I say this as a player of Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. um, puts on a cape <laughs> and goes to local schools. Uh-huh. And he like travels around yeah. doing school events as a 15-year-old who wrote this book mm-hmm. Like in a cape and he like he's all dressed up and he like stands on tables and he like sings songs and he, basically he's like very engaging in schools. Yeah. Anyway, one kid sees this display of uh, writerly, you know, 
ingenuity. Yeah. And buys the book, reads mm-hmm. it, loves it, because, you know, kid. Yeah. Reads it, loves it. Yeah. Um, kid gives the book to another kid whose father works at Knopf. Mm. And so then Knopf, yep, yep, acquired it. So that's how that happened. Anyway, so I did not get the cape wearing Christopher Paolini. Yeah. I got the I have a traditional book publishing I was deal say, and yeah, I'm I like bet, I bet he dropped the cake and real I'm like fast 20. as soon as Knopf had <laughs> Oh for sure. He yeah. was like twenty yeah. and he's like tall and skinny and he like came out and he like did you know and it was one of my first it was one of my first events. It was at the Red Balloon bookstore in St. Paul and mm-hmm. I had done like some signings with like Brian Jakes and you yeah, know yeah. Right. all that. But it was like one of my first events where he like gave a talk and whatever. He was taking questions and I, because I'm a nosy little reader, had noticed that two of the main characters in his book had names from um, the uh, from from the Headless Horseman. Yeah. Like like, you know, there was there was Bram and something else. Like, I don't think it was like Ichabod, but I think it was like whatever the girl's name was. And I was like. Have you read this story? Like, have you, like, where did you get those names? Because he was like, the whole thing right. is like Aragon is dragon with an E, right? right and yeah, he was yeah. like talking about how he would like put things backwards and then like that's how you figure out the name. Because he was right. talking about fantasy names. And I was like, you right. took this from this story. And right. then he got like, because he was like 20. Yeah. And I was like, this obnoxious 12 year old. Well, you asked him also a very good question though. Sure. Yeah. But I was just like, because I was basically like, I think in. You know, in in retrospect, I was asking about like how he was influenced by other books, but yeah. just like specifically focusing right. on the names, mm-hmm. right? And then he just like sputter and like he totally got it from that story. Like, of course he did, yeah, right. But then he was just like he like started to like get kind of pale and then he started to flush a little bit and then he like sputtered a little bit yeah. and then he was like, no, no, it's just a coincidence, yeah. blah 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 blah, and he just like. It would have been fine if he would have said it was just a coincidence, but he got like really weird and uncomfortable about it. Uh-huh. And so then I was like, this wasn't just a coincidence. And then it kind of like derailed him a little bit. And that is how I ruined a Christopher Paolini <laughs> writer's event. We went. <laughs> that's very good. You, you were at this one with me. We went, um, I guess, what, a year ago? Chuck year and Klosterman? A half. Yeah, we went and saw Chuck Klosterman. And I remember like he's like kind of witty and clever he's right? very engaging and so and oh the reading was great but i remember i bought the book and i was going to get it signed and i was standing there like in the signing line and i was like trying to i was like n- all nervous like trying to decide all right what am i going to say to chuck klosterman that's going to be like because you want to come off as like cool and knowledgeable but detached and all, all these all these give things. a little wink like i'm yeah, in this business yeah, too. yeah yeah you want to like you know definitely come across as like not caring that much because like it's not cool to care about things but also, like, that you do, you know, you got to do, like, play that whole, like, Schrodinger's giving a shit that Chuck Klosterman <laughs> does about literally everything. <laughs> and I got up there, and all I could, he, I gave him the book, and he kind of looked at me with, you know, his just vibrant orange beard, right? <laughs> it is very and, vibrant. And all I could muster saying was, really good. <laughs> and And he, like... Thanks, man. Like, thanks. He, like, looked at me like I was, like, some sort of weirdo. <laughs> so, fun fact. I was not in this line because yeah. I was not buying the right. book. Yeah. And then, so, like, I was waiting, like, at the front. And then Eric 
who is you're fairly tall. Yeah. You've got quite a long stride when yeah. you try to try to have one. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden <laughs> after this happens, which I'm not there for, all of a sudden he like strides past me really quickly out of the out of the book. <laughs> He's like, time there. to go. I had to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really embarrassing. I didn't do a very good job. So um, that so okay, so rules, right? Yeah. Conversational unless some twelve year old's like shit is gonna ask you about about Ichabod Don't call Crane. On the kids because you're gonna this is the thing. You're gonna wanna call on the kids. Because the kids are cute. The kids are fun. The kids make reading, you know, they it's like all the book stuff, joyful, hooray, you know, the children are learning. But when you call on the kid, they're going to ask you something you don't want to answer because they haven't learned what a good book question is yet. Mm. Though I mean, I think that you asked a good book question well, that thank you should you. have answered. Um, yeah, you got to avoid the ch- – step one is to avoid the children step at two, all costs. wear the statement chinos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't can't. understand what the difference is between chinos and khakis, quite honestly. That's a Other purview. than like that's for chinos a are a different color. Can somebody please Someone, at me with this? <laughs> Someone needs to have me on the show and I'll yep. explain you the difference. Okay, great. Um but yeah, I don't know what else. I um, definitely have see I'm I don't I think we need to fight about the cake thing because it to me, like what I want at a reading is cheese. I mean, yes. I will always take cheese over literally anything else. Mm-hmm. Like if you're like Laura, you can have cheese or wine, I'll be like, I will take the cheese. Yeah. Um but yeah, definitely. Cheese. So like basically snacks is what we're getting at, like treats, essentially, yeah. Yeah. you know, like a nice cheese plate a, a cake with, you know, your book's face on it. Yeah. Something like that. You know yeah. what no one makes anymore, by what? the way? Rice Krispie treats. I would love to go to a reading with a good Rice Krispie treat. Maybe the ones that, that are can, like the peanut butter with the chocolate on That I can just like chaw on while you're in the middle of the, whatever sex scene you're reading <laughs> to a room full of strangers. Just like gum on the marshmallow. Just... <laughs> uh, do you know what I like at readings? What I really appreciate? Yeah. Um, it, and this is specifically for local readings. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like, so like I really appreciate um, when the event is really more for your parents than it is for you. So it's like mm-hmm. a wedding, but like for your f- first book. Right. And so like your parents come and they just stand and like, it's all about them telling everyone that like they're related to you and that they're responsible for your success. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty great. Right. I like it when that happens. <laughs> Once I was at a launch for a book that I worked at and uh, it was, it was a picture book and the illustrators who the illustrator who I love, um, his mother came to the event mm-hmm. and I told her, I was like, you know what? Everybody here like that has worked with your son has a crush on him. Mm. And then she all of a sudden turned into like mom mode and then started <laughs> trying to like match make us with with him. Excellent. And yeah. she was like, oh, well, he's single. And I was like, God. we're not. But like definitely like mom wanted to like not only did she want to leave home with the book, but she wanted to leave yeah. with with a uh, with a with a daughter in law. That was fun. One of the other great things that happens at readings is when everyone asks the writer for writing advice <laughs> um, when they don't really want to. And I, it's understandable. Like it, when you don't want to talk about like the book or the themes or any of those things in the store, when you what you're really looking for is like publishing advice, and you get there's always like that subset of questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I went to this reading in college, and it was it was Don DeLillo, um, and everyone it was a room full of college writers, right? So everyone had all these questions about, um, you know, how do you do it? How do you publish? How do you do any of these things? Because no one had any idea how to even like conceive of the publishing industry, right? 
And he just kept saying over and over again that there was no way to publish. He was just like, you have to, you have to figure it out on your own. There's no, <laughs> there's no path. There's no route. And I was Is like, he from hmm. Liverpool? That's how he sounded. He was very whispery. He kind of uh. like whispered into the, into the microphone. Um, it was, it was very strange. I realize I'm doing a lot of voices on this episode. I'm into I don't it. know what that's about. <laughs> Maybe our special episode should be just Eric doing Me voices. doing like hand puppets and stuff. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, anyway, um, luckily we don't have to worry about any of that anymore because we've got something that I am incredibly enthused about having back, which is the... I see, I'm no good at it. I gotta, Do like, it pull... again. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, better. There you go. Um, the you gotta, publishing like, death it. knell of the week. Woo! Um, we haven't done one of these in a while, which is a shame because it's fun to predict the downfall of our entire livelihoods every possible week but today it comes to us um from a fellow named will self um whose picture as we look at this art this interview with him i think we agreed before the show looks sort of like a retired racing greyhound in a bowler hat is that where we ended up it's like a fedora so like do you ever have i do this with dogs that i'm like dog sitting where like you get the dog and they're like cuddling and they just want to please you and then you like take a hat and you put it on them because you think (laughs) it would be funny and they just look at you like i really don't like this but i guess it's okay if you're still gonna feed me that's how he looks in this fedora yeah um you just got a picture like a a greyhound that like didn't win the race, <laughs> like it sort of came in like sixth or seventh, and then like definitely developed some bone spurs, and now it just like yep. sits around in the, on the veranda and like lets his lets his yeah. six year old like yeah. master just like put hats on him. Yeah, this so is anyway. what this guy is. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um. Anyway, Will Self, um, was asked a qu- a number of questions in this interview, but one of them was, um. You're not awfully optimistic about the future of the novel, are you? He was asked, and this is his response. I think the novel is absolutely doomed to become a marginal cultural form along with easel painting and the classical symphony. And that's already happened. I've been publishing since 1990, so I've seen it happen in my writing lifetime. It's impossible to think of a novel that's been a water cooler moment in England or in Britain since train spotting, probably. Um, so pack it in, folks. Yeah. Um, publishing is over. The novel is dead. Um, it's going to go the way of easel painting, uh, which actually would be sweet. I'd love to be like an easel actually, painting Actually, easel painting hasn't gone away. Now they have all of those like the the wine and paint <laughs> nights where yeah. they like set you up with an easel and like a paintbrush and then like give you directions for how yeah. to paint a sunset. Mm-hmm. Easel painting seems to be doing really great with the mommy crowd. So... Um, Anyway, Laura, what is your quick take on the novel is bad and dead? Well, so I can't take this seriously for many reasons. <laughs> the first of which is is that this author um, says that the novel is dead because uh, no one's because about people it are watching movies on their phones. Yeah. So that novels only mattered when they were the beginning, kind of like the er text to then turn into screenplays and then movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but because movies are being watched on phones, that no longer happens. Okay. Yeah, no, that's reasonable. Yeah. Also, <laughs> what's super reasonable is, is that he doesn't read fiction. Oh, that's good. So a great way a great way to have an opinion on the state of fiction is to not read any of it. Yeah. That would be my first bit of advice. Yeah. I also can't take this guy seriously because he only ever reads in digital formats, but he writes on a Olivetti uh Lettera twenty two manual typewriter. I believe he refers to it as a good old Olivetti 
Lettera 22. Um, this is a Guardian article, by the <laughs> Which way. Which is just obnoxious out, but... to everybody. Like yeah. that, like writing on a typewriter in this day and age literally doesn't help anyone. <laughs> I once had, when I was at Oxford, um, we had a, a author send in their manuscript. He's like, all right, I'm ready to deliver. And I was like, okay, great. And then like nothing happened. And I was like sort of waiting for either a email with an attachment or a Dropbox link or whatever. And eventually the mail came. And <laughs> oh, no. it was... It was like a thousand, it was like this thousand page manuscript. It was this giant physics monograph, oh, right? Oh, no. Like, it was a book. I don't even remember what it was about, but it was not, it was like for, it was written for like 200 other physicists, right? Like one of those kind of books. And it was just this stack that I just had on my desk for like a month because I couldn't figure out what to do with it. What did you do? And the author like wouldn't send me like the electronic version. She's like, well, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to give you the electronic file. He like... He was one of those people that like didn't do his own email and stuff, you yeah. know. And I was like trying to get through to his assistant, like, "Hey, we need this in a different version." I ended up having to like scan in the pages um, of this book, so I'm like standing there at the scanner just just all day, one day, you know, um, scanning in a manuscript so that then we can have PDF of a book that we obviously can't edit then from that format. But like the editor I was working with like worked remotely, so I, it, it was it was a mess. So, um, but the okay, point is, so this you... is what happens when you have an author who won't type things on email um, or won't send you digital files of things. And that alone is enough to make everyone in his entire extended universe crazy, I'm sure. So, okay, T- take me through. So you <laughs> scanned it into a PDF. <clears throat> uh-huh. But, you know, you can't have like Adobe recognize all right. the right. all of the characters and that. So whatever. So like you had a digital file, but yeah. did you still have to like read? type it like what happened after you had it well so there's like you can retypeset things Mm. off of pdfs you've got to like it involves or some hairy processes with programs that i don't have i bet your designer um, just loved you no they they basically hated me by the end because like i said we would go into these meetings and everyone would have like normal books with normal paragraphs and then i would come in and be like okay so this book has like 200 chemistry diagrams in it they're all embedded in the text no it's not as an insert it's in the text um, we're going to have to basically reflow everything. Also, it's 50 pages longer than we thought um, because there's way more diagrams. No, we can't cut any of it. Um, and so people really liked me as a like because every book that I handed them had like, well, yeah, no, there's like 90 pages. It's all just butterfly photos. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, we just need we need you all need the, the butterflies. Yeah, what are we going to do? Cut the butterflies. Um, but yeah, science books are a hoot in that way. But anyway, with this one, the I guess the um, joy of it was that uh, we didn't have to edit it because it was a physics monograph. Like, who? We, there's no way for us to edit that. Yeah, like, you know, how are like, you going like, to know? I don't have any expertise to do that. Neither. So it was ready to roll, but... Um, anyway, it was kind of a pain on the butt. But anyway, so is Will Self um, is the moral of this story. And I feel like when your judgment on whether or not the novel is alive or not is based on people talking about it with you at the water cooler um, and also you don't read any any fiction. Yeah, um, like maybe... I wouldn't want to engage in any conversation with a guy that's <laughs> plonking away on a typewriter when I'm just trying to like get my shit done and, you know, drink some water. Yeah. It's, anyway. It's... <laughs> I don't know. I think that by and large, most proclamations about the state of literature are almost always wrong. Like there's never like anyone who has like that kind of sweeping statement is usually pretty off base just because it means they're not paying attention to whatever the actual form is. And if you want my actual honest opinion about whether or not the novel is dying, 
it's that of course it's not because it's an essential form that even if we it tweaks in some way or becomes something else what we consider it is still going to exist always because it's people like it just as much as they ever did so yeah, but um publishing's had a good run what can i that's say it. no it's over i mean i'm gonna get into i mean what are the other careers i usually list welding is one of them yeah um i don't know you're a little delicate for welding I am delicate for welding. <laughs> You're right. I'm going to have to be maybe like a cobbler. I think I would be a very good shoemaker. <laughs> I could sit in the back of my little shop and like yeah. make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could be a great cobbler. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. That would be that'd be ideal. Anyway, so we have one real thing. To we talk Yeah. About. We, we have we, one we... real thing besides <laughs> cobblers. Um, Tell so, us about it. Yeah. Okay. So I have been... Speaking with a lot of editors over the past couple of weeks, specifically who work in genre fiction, um, they, you know, were I'm talking about specifically like the big earners. Right. So thriller, mystery, romance, the ones that are very trope driven, the ones that, you know, aren't aren't literary fiction, you know, kind of the pulpy ones that people just read and don't come with a lot of prestige Mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, And I noticed a trend while I was talking to just a bunch of them. Yeah. And the trend is this, uh, that all of the imprints are kind of refocusing and trimming down so that they're really just featuring a few kind of big names like high producers big earners mm-hmm. in these genres yeah um and they're not really taking on debuts and if they take on somebody new they have to have a really strong record of sale you know multiple thousands of copies for each book that they've published Which and that sort of thing sort of a trap because how are you supposed to get sales without having a publisher yeah yeah so um i think you know we've we've spoken a lot on the show about how publishers are becoming more risk averse. Mm -hmm. Um, And this I feel like is a really, and we've, we've talked about that a lot and we haven't really explained what it meant. And this is a really tangible version of that. So um, the typically books will kind of break even or like, you know, barely make any money or a lot of books lose money outside of, you know, outside of these, these genres, right? The, you know, the mystery, thriller, romance, you know, like James Patterson makes a fuck ton of money. (laughs) Tom Clancy makes a fuck ton of money, right? And these kind of like really constant sellers where they're coming out with a lot of books and they're selling really strongly. These are books that are always on the New York Times bestseller list. These are books that fund an entire company so that the company can do the prestige books, the ones that will win the awards, you know, the ones that will kind of make them seem serious. There is something about all those people, though. Yeah. So um, these these big so these big producers um, are basically now because the publishers are becoming more risk averse. They're not wanting to make room for debuts in these lists because like why would you need to publish debuts when you have tom clancy well so let's that's i think where the question comes in so what is like what's the answer why should you publish debut like why if i'm mr publisher man and i've got you know these kind of big hitters on my list make to me the argument from a business perspective for i and i there is one i mean we'll get to it in a second but what (laughs) um what like what's your response to that 
uh, what happens when Tom Clancy retires. <laughs> and along with that, more I see it, I think that's right on. Right, um, or like with James Patterson or any of these people, their readerships are old too. Yeah. Like you're not actually bringing in new, younger, like you're not doing a good enough job of like cultivating the next wave of readers. You yeah. Know? I hear at conferences all the time, oh, young agents don't represent mysteries and thrillers anymore. And the idea is yeah. that because young people don't read them and so that young agents don't want to rep the books, even though they're phenomenal earners. But it's also, but so, and I think that that's actually circular though, because another reason why we don't rep those sorts of books is because publishers only want them from the people who already are, you know, making, are making it. Like it would be really tough for me to like start repping thrillers and stuff because it's tough to break into those markets because people trust their, like thrillers especially, are like a market that's sold based on the big giant name of the author on the front cover. You yep. know, like it's a, um, you know, it's tough to get somebody new into that space. And so it's sort of this self-defeating cycle. And, you know, we talk, like you said, a lot about, well, risk aversion and, you know, sticking to name brands and or celebrities or these people at the expense of, um, at the expense of kind of new voices and but like that day of reckoning is coming, you know, yeah. because like readerships are going to age out, writers are going to retire, um, you know. It's I don't know, like you got to have an answer, like so. I do think it's necessary, and um, like it's 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 ridiculous to make the genres that literally pay all of your expenses. Yeah inhospitable for debuts yes because even like if you can you know you look at a company like you know harlequin or you know any of these like really really branded publishers um at some point like that name isn't going to be enough and yeah. like that name is no longer going to be the big you know the big name in x genre because you're not you're just going to be publishing a lot of the same old same old and kind of not pushing on your audience and i think it you know this this risk aversion i think it's becoming stronger right now you know a lot yeah. of a lot of these shifts um have been with uh, digital first imprints or digital only imprints that mm -hmm. have launched out of big fives. And so the idea is that these big fives launched these digital imprints because the investment is lower so you can try debuts. But even yeah. now they're learning, oh, well, we can make way more money if we don't take any risks at all. Well, it's um, like, you know, these are, you know, these, these a lot of these get called dad books, right? Like yeah. these are the thrillers. These are for your dad. This is what you get. It's on the kind of the front table. Or mom books, or yeah. Or mom, you know, and my question, Laura, is what about all the future dads out there? <laughs> what about those of us who are trying to buy books? who we don't, we don't have children yet. No. We haven't, you know, come in from mowing the lawn and need to like sit there and read my, you know, Tom Clancy thriller and get mad at the terrorists in the book, you know? Like... Where's my book? Where's like the new version? And I'm just saying, like, you gotta you gotta account for what the about the millennial dads, dads? Yeah, what about all us, you know, dads, up and coming dads, you know? Yeah. And moms. And, and moms. moms. But I don't think I guess is mom book as prevalent of a phrase as dad book? No, no, not yeah. at all, because women are bigger readers in general. Yeah, that's um, actually the reason, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> we dads over here. Only like one kind of book. Yeah, baseball for and, men and yeah. for yeah for men. Um, yeah, I just yeah. I don't know. Like I'm kind of caught in this thing where I just kind of want to like say to these imprints like 
you're doing this wrong. Yeah. Like you're you're not protecting yourself. You're protecting yourself in the short term because you're not taking risks in this season in what you're publishing. But like I am looking forward, you know, what's going to happen in five years and 10 years and 20 years. And if, you know, like if people just keep treating these these genres like cash cows, first of all, like, you know, they're not going to gain any respect. You know, there's kind of this already this idea that these books are pulpy and that they're not for real readers and they're not serious and it doesn't count. Um, if that keeps going, then people are going to stop reading them because eventually people are going to go, oh, well, I'm not supposed to be reading these, so I'm not going to read them. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's also a situation where, you know, like you said it, like, you know, you're it's so short sighted, but it also is short sighted in a way that often feels necessary for presses. Right. Like not yeah. these presses don't have the capital often to just like take a big writ like they don't they simply can't afford it the margins are so small that they have to keep going back to the well every chance they get but it's i don't know like the trend i feel like doesn't doesn't look good in that regard and you know it it kind of brings up some ideas you know with with me as an agent i was like okay how because before you could be like yeah it's really easy relatively it's never easy to get published but it's relatively easy to get published in a lot of these genres just because they they have so many books on their list every season yeah um but now it's getting it's getting really 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 squished and so i think a lot of people are going to be moving to self-publishing and what's it going to mean when you know Five out of the ten top New York Times paperbacks Amazon. Top Amazon or Amazon list. top Amazon list. Washington Post, Jeff Bezos approved <laughs> are self-published instead of, you know, kind of the big publishers that aren't being able to pay their paychecks. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. that's kind of my big observation and big <laughs> thought of the moment. Yeah. Take some goddamn risks. Um, so today for the I guess the right tip, um, I want to focus on editing a little bit. Um, and it's something that I think we bring up every now and then on the Query in the First Pages show. So if you're not a subscriber, maybe you're hearing this advice from us on, uh, for the first time. But it refers to like deciding when and how to cut material from your book. And there's a very simple way to do it. And it sounds a little bit harsh, I think, but that's kind of the point when you're trying to trim something down. Like maybe you know you happen to know that a cat your category needs to, is has a certain word count, and you're like ten thousand words too high or something, and you need to just remove words. And the way that I've found to do it, whether I'm editing someone or working on my own stuff or anything like that, is to just make the cut, do the cut, put the you know words somewhere else, you know whether it's in the track changes or like in a different document, read it again, read the manuscript again without the piece that you've removed in there. And the simple question arises, did you lose any meaning, meaning by not having it? Did, would anyone notice that it's not there? And I think... More often than not, your instinct to cut is the good one, and that's kind of the point. Like, if you, usually, I guess maybe this is the way I think about it. If you're staring at a portion of your manuscript and you're trying to decide, well, should that go? Should I get rid of that? I would say um, almost always the answer is yes, um, even if like it needs to be repurposed and redone in some other way. But like, cut, cut, cut. And the way to do it, I think, is to actually just make the cut for a second, reread it, and see if things line up in a way that feels coherent without that material. Good tip, Eric. <laughs> Buy some great pants too. That's my other yeah, publishing tip. That's that's a that's a life tip, I think. Yeah. 
Um, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Print Run. Remember to tune in for First Pages later this week, and we will see you for a regular episode next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.